Lasso. This morning we'll continue with settling the mind in its natural state. But I'd like to preface the actual practice with a brief allusion back to the third of those four thoughts that turn the mind about. Lo do. It's the same word as lo jong. Lo means our perspective, our attitude. Uh, and then the dog is just turning it right about, like revolutionizing our perspective. And the third one being focusing on the reality of suffering. And if we ask the, the deepest question about the reality of suffering, and then going into the second noble truth, the source of suffering, say, well, why, we ha- why do we have to suffer at all? We suffer for all kinds of reasons, but just fundamentally, right, right down at the tap root, here we are, sentient beings in the universe. Why is this necessary? What's, what's really at its core. And so this is referring to what in Tibetan is called the deepest kind of suffering, the deepest dimension of suffering. Liter- and the, the term itself translates in, in a rather vague way in English. Kyapa means pervasive and duchet means of, of comp- composites, because suffering of pervasive suffering of composites. So the etymology doesn't help us a whole lot, but the meaning is quite clear. And that is this deepest dimension of suffering it arises directly because of, or pertains to, our relationship with our bodies and minds. And the Tibetan term here is zakchit nyewar lembi pumbo, that is the aggregates, or simply, simply put, our bodies and mind. Zakchit means defiled, contaminated, which is to say in the Buddhist worldview, this body arose independent upon klesha, mental afflictions, and karma from past life that propelled us into this life and gave rise to the formation of this particular body-mind. And so we are, we are really continually creating ourselves and recreating ourselves from lifetime to lifetime, uh, and aroused by mental afflictions, especially delusion, and then manifesting by way of karma. But the, the third term, Zakchit Nyewaralemba, Nyewaralemba is the real key here. And that is, these are closely held. Nyewaralemba means we are closely holding onto or identifying with our bodies and minds, which are defiled in the sense of being created by karma and klesha. But this closely holding, nyewaralemba, <coughs> that's the real key. And that is, it is that very identification with that which is not I or mine as being I or mine. So the body, for example, it's just a bunch of tissue. Who knows how much of this tissue we could be start transplanting? You know, swap, what do you think, Suzanne? Should we swap livers? And how about kidney? We could swap heart. We could swap blood. We could swap skin. We could swap hair. Where does it stop? Lungs. Why not? Swap a lung, you know? And just how many parts can you swap? Maybe we can even swap some neurons, you know? Just start chiseling away. You know, a few glial cells here or there who would, who would miss them, you know? And start swapping synapses and neurons and so forth. But the point there is that none of these constituents of the body are a person. None of them are me. And if you look into their very nature, from the neurons right down to fingernails, none of them have the earmarks of being belonging to anyone. Cells are cells, right? Whether it's the cells in the fingernails or the cells in the brain, they're just cells. They don't have Maria Elena imprinted on them or Paolo imprinted on them. They're just cells. And that's why we can swap so many of them, right? And so, as for the body, there is nothing there that is I, that is a person, or that is by its very nature mine, that it belongs to me, it has somehow me in it. And then the same is true for the mind. 
Memories are just memories. Feelings are just feelings. Emotions, desires, perceptions, consciousness. They are simply what they are, but they're not a person. And if, when we look into each one of them, there's nothing intrinsically of anything about them that makes them inherently mine or yours. But while that is the case in the Buddhist view, nevertheless, we grasp onto that which is not I or mine as really, really, really being I or mine. And that exactly is what makes us vulnerable to all manner of suffering. So this practice, so that was a little preamble. So this practice here, so what's the alternative one can say? Well, how about settling the mind in its natural state? And that is to be told, that is, what, once again, this is very important, this is not dissociation, like cringing, pulling away from, oh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, and trying to pull into some safe space. That's kind of the strategy of just following shamatha for as far as it will go. Shamatha, the first jhana, and the second, third, fourth jhana, into the formless realm, into infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception. That is a radical, massive withdrawal, kind of a dissociation, frankly, from one's body and mind and from the entire phenomenal world, a withdrawal as far as you can possibly go. And that trajectory of just sheer samadhi into subtler and subtler, more and more rarefied states, that trajectory was very well researched, explored, thoroughly mapped out before the Buddha was born. That's how old the samadhi tradition is in India. It was already centuries old. So that's very, very ancient, very deep technology, probing into multiple dimensions of consciousness. And that's pre-Buddha. And so as many of you know then, when the Buddha, the young Gautama at the age of 29, stepped forth from his home and became voluntarily a homeless wanderer, the first people he sought out were first one and then a second samadhi master. He was seeking out the best technology, you know, the, the cutting-edge contemplative technology of his time, and sought out to, you know, it was like Steve Jobs and who's that guy over there at Microsoft? What's his name? Bill Gates, yeah. Like, you know, getting, getting a, a good workshop from Steve Jobs and then another one, Bill Gates, probably in the reverse order, uh, to get the very best. And he mastered them both. I mean, he was amazing. He was the prodigy. And they were so, both so delighted, you know. You've achieved moksha, you've achieved liberation by achieving these extremely rarefied, dissociative states of consciousness where you're so withdrawn from the phenomenal world. But then Gautama, at the age of 29, having achieved these, replicated the, the realizations of his teachers, then saw this is just dissociation, this is just withdrawal. But when you do come back, and sooner or later you will, it's like stretching a rubber band, sooner or later it's going to come back. And when you flip back into body, mind, phenomenal world, the same old predispositions, the same old habits, habitual propensities, click right in again. And the familiar grasping onto I and mine is right there. It was never touched. You just took a long, long vacation. So therefore, he thought, okay, samadhi's grand. Certainly is very nice, very peaceful. But it doesn't solve anything all by itself. So what we'll do in this practice then, without much further ado, is... We'll attend to the body, but try to maintain a spaciousness of awareness, not having the, the field of awareness collapse down into my body, my sensations, my feelings into the body, but rather maintain that spaciousness while being totally present with, discerningly present, open-hearted, mindful, attentive, but not locking in not collapsing down into the body, 
of then feeling I'm located here. I've got boundaries. I've got real inherent boundaries. So we'll do that for the body first, and then we'll do it for the mind. Practice settling the mind is natural state, where you're resting in that awareness, which is not localized. Again, it's not over here versus the mind over there. At the same time, it's not the same as the mind. And observing whatever rises in the mind without grasping with, with means, without closely holding onto my thoughts, my images, my memories, and so forth. But this time we'll go one step further. And that's where, on this note, I will end. We jump right into the practice. And that is thus far, the emphasis has been, when we're attending to the body, yesterday afternoon, I think it was, we're attending to these sensations associated with the four elements, earth, water, fire, air, which arise to us. They rise to meet us as appearances, kind of objective appearances. Oh, look, there's solidity. Oh, there's warmth. There's motion and so forth. So they arise to us. They're objective arising, just as when I, when I gaze at Susie's blouse, I see red rising to meet me, right? There it is. I'm seeing it, right? And so a similar fashion, tactically speaking, these sensations of earth, water, fire, air, they rise to meet us as objective appearances within that space of the body. But of course, there's more going on in that space than just the objective appearances themselves. So for example, if red is my favorite color, and I gazed over at Susie's blouse or her shirt, I said, oh, that's a cool, I really like that color. That's really, oh, that's really nice, so rich, so warm, I really like it. And so now I'm experiencing that color. The color is still just appearing. The color is the color. It's not intrinsically pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. It's just the color. But as I gaze at it, if I'm really enjoying it, I said, oh, wow, maybe I can buy a, sh a shirt like that. It's so nice. And I'm just really enjoying the color. Feeling is arising. I'm thinking that color is really pretty, right? Boy, I like that color. So the, the prettiness of it, the attractiveness of it, seems to be right in the very nature of the color itself. Anybody, look, doesn't it just knock your eyes out? Don't you just love that color? And other people are going, eh, I could take it or leave it. I like yellow. I like green. But if you like red, that's your business. But I'm not seeing what you're seeing. Right? But how can you not? I mean, that's a pretty color. Don't you see it? They say, well, it's red. No, but it's a beautiful red. No, it's just red. So there may be differences of perception here, where I'm superimposing upon the objective appearance the way I'm perceiving it. And that's the thing about vedana, about feeling. About feeling of pleasant, pleasurable feeling, unpleasurable, and neutral. That in fact, the, the, the feeling is in the mode of apprehension and it's not in the nature of the objective appearance. That kind of a crucial. The feeling, are you enjoying it or not? Is it pleasant or is it painful? It's not there intrinsically in the nature of the objective appearance. It's in our subjective way of experiencing that appearance. And that goes for color. Now, there's a really an, an easy example. Some people like red, some people don't like it. Somebody just stroking the back of your hand. If it's a very dear friend, oh, that feels so nice. If it's a stranger on a train, <laughs> not so nice. Like, what the hell are you doing, creep? Back off. Dirty old man, you know? Same sensation, you know? Your child is stroking your hand, and then a dirty old man on the train. Same sensation. Pleasant, very unpleasant. Creepy, really creepy. Well, we see, no, it's not in the sensation. The sensation's the same. But here, it's really very, it's experienced as, oh, that's such a nice feel, and that's such a creepy feel. We're superimposing objectively that which is not there objectively, but it's there in our subjective motive of, of, of experience. The same is true 
when we turn to space of the mind. All kinds of appearances arise. Images, thoughts, and so forth. Right? They arise to us just like the color red, but now in the space of the mind. In fact, I can, quote, I can do it right now. I'm just visualizing Susie's red shirt. There it is. It's coming to mind. Not a bad replication of what I was seeing visually. There it is. And if I'm really attached to that shirt, I said, oh, I wish I had a shirt like that. Then I can be experiencing that shirt right now. Say, oh, man, I like that shirt. I hope I get one. Got to memorize it so when I get back home, I can buy one just like it. Because it's such a pretty shirt. You know? right? There it is, the same. That it's just an image. The image is not pleasant or unpleasant. But because I'm experiencing it in a pleasant or unpleasant fashion, therefore I say, it's pleasant. It's attractive. And that's unattractive. I like that one. I don't like that one. This is agreeable. That's not agreeable. We turn a, a verb into a noun because the verb is the way we're experiencing the shirt, etc. And the noun is, it's a pretty shirt. No, it's a disgusting shirt. It looks like blood. It looks like somebody bled all over it. Disgusting. Why would anybody ever have red? It's a color of blood. It's a color of danger, disaster. What do you want to just say? Hello, I'm danger. So there we are. So what we'll try to do here is to observe not only the appearances arising in the space of the body, the objective appearances, and not only the objective appearances arising in the space of the mind, which, of course, we experience every time we're dreaming, right? All kinds of appearances, smells and taste and touch and people and mountains and volcanoes and halos and all kinds of stuff appearing to us objectively. And we say that was a nightmare and that was a great dream. That was a pleasant dream. That was an unpleasant dream. Not in the nature of the appearances. In the nature of our way of experiencing those appearances. So now as we try to extricate ourselves from the spider web of this closely holding to our bodies and minds as being inherently I and mine, as we try to extricate ourselves from it, again, it's not a matter of dissociation. It's a matter of releasing grasping. Releasing grasping. And not only to the objective appearances in the space of the mind, but even to the feelings, the emotions that arise, which are exactly in that subjective mode of experience. But we don't have to identify with them either. We can be totally aware of them. Again, not withdrawing, not negating, not blinding ourselves, not cringing, not any of the above. Totally present, but free of grasping. That's a skill. Really useful one. Really, really useful. So you can see, for example, in between sessions, oh, I see some disappointment is arising. Interesting. That's called disappointment. Oh, I see it's fading out now. Bye-bye, disappointment. What's up next? Rather than feeling, I'm feeling so disappointed. I'm feeling so disappointed. As we grasp onto the feeling and identify with it, I'm disappointed. Who are you? Total fusion of the identity. Cognitive fusion. I'm pissed off. I'm so happy. I'm excited. I'm miserable. I'm afraid. I, 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 right? Delusion. And that's exactly what's making us so vulnerable to suffering. Not the fact that there are emotions arising, but the fact that we identify fiercely, tenaciously, with whatever's arising in the mind. And for that matter, whatever arises in the body. So there we are. Let's jump in. See what, what, how it goes. <coughs>
The first step, as always, as we venture into the practice in the spirit of loving kindness, wishing ourselves well, aspiring for happiness and the causes of happiness, in that gentle and loving mode, the first step is to loosen up, relax, settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. Settle your mind in its natural state, your awareness coming to rest, loose, relaxed, free of grasping, in stillness, resting in its own place. And as you rest your awareness in this stillness, it's a natural stillness when the awareness is free of grasping, let the light of your awareness illuminate the space of the body and the tactile sensations associated with the four elements of earth, water, fire, and air. Simply observe their nature arising and passing within this space, sustaining the flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping.
And now within this space of the body, attend to, to the feelings that arise. Some areas of the body may feel pleasant, some may, be, may feel uncomfortable, and some may come with a neutral feeling, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Closely apply your mindfulness to not only the tactile sensations or the objective appearances arising within the space of the body, but also the feelings that arise. And observe them in the same way. Simply observe their nature to the best of your ability without distraction and without grasping onto them, identifying with them, preferring this one, not preferring that one, trying to make one go away, trying to perpetuate another. Observe clearly and discerningly but to the best of your ability, without grasping. If you feel any impulse to move the body, examine closely the unpleasant feeling that aroused or catalyzed that desire, and observe that feeling closely without identifying with it. Upon close examination, can you distinguish between the appearances that are arising objectively, appearances of solidity, warmth, and so on, versus the feeling of pleasure or displeasure that arises in relationship to those objective appearances? Can you distinguish between the objective appearances and your subjective mode of experiencing them?
And then with your eyes at least partially open, your gaze vacantly resting in the space in front of you. Direct your mindfulness single-pointedly to the space of the mind. And first of all, to whatever objective appearances arise within that domain. Mental images, chit-chat, whatever comes to mind. Observe its nature. And let it be without seeking to alter it in any way. Again, distinguish between the stillness of your awareness resting in its own place and the movement of thoughts and images. 
And now observe not only the objective appearances and the space of the mind, but also the feelings, the emotions that arise in response to or in the way you experience those objective appearances. Again, simply observe their nature to the best of your ability, maintaining a spaciousness of awareness that does not contract down into the feeling by identifying with it. But simply let it, too, arise and pass within the space of the mind. Note also other types of subjective impulses, such as desires. Note the feelings that catalyze the desires. And again, simply observe their nature without latching onto them, without rejecting them, without acting upon them. Simply be aware of them from moment to moment as they rise and pass within the space of the mind.
o lazo. We have this phrase in English you're all, we're all familiar with, and I'm sure it finds counterparts in other languages, of being small-minded. We say a person is being small-minded. This means they have very, very limited vision, probably to very, very self-centered. They're seeing only their own concerns, maybe only very short term. They're not seeing the big picture, right? Other sentient beings, consequences over time, become very small-minded. Obviously not a good thing. Whenever our awareness collapses down to the identification of my body and my mind, that's being small-minded, right? Whereas awareness is open like space. So it's as much as possible between sessions as well, not only just these two 24-minute hors d'oeuvres each day. Maintaining a spaciousness of the mind, spaciousness of awareness, wide open. When you're out walking, spaciousness out into the space around you in all directions, that openness that is very luminous, that is clearly ascertaining whatever is coming up, coming up in the body, coming up in the mind, but without collapsing down into it, just being totally present with it. Very refreshing. So let's try that. I'll see you at 4.30.